We're coming to the end of season three. And gosh, what an episode this is. This very special episode of Masala Podcast Live was recorded at King's Place, London on Saturday, 11th September as part of the London Podcast Festival. Our bad babies took over King's Place. We had a wonderful live audience. You could feel the sense of sisterhood and support across the room. I had four incredible guests. Raga De Silva, LGBTQ activist. Farah Kabir, co-founder of female-focused sexual wellness brand Hanks. Dr. Rageshri Thairivan, HIV and sexual health activist, as well as Dr. Tina Mystery, clinical psychologist specializing in South Asian mental health. But here's what made this special episode extra special. We had the first ever LGBTQ South Asian marriage proposal live on the podcast. Yes, one of my guests, Raga De Silva, proposed to their long-term partner, Nicola Fenton, on the podcast. This was a huge surprise that we had organized, trying hard to keep it secret from Nicola and the audience. When the proposal finally happened, it was just so moving. We all shed tears. We danced a little to some shadi music. We witnessed the most beautiful moment of love, not just between Raga and Nicola. We all felt nurtured and showered with love by the Masala podcast community who had turned up to support us. I can't tell you how much this live podcast episode and the incredible support I received from the audience means to me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Sharam, but the me. Chi chi. I'm Sangeeta Pillai and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women. Sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame and many more taboos. Oh my God, we're all in a room together after what, two years? Oh my God. So I'm going to be at a loss for words a little bit. So bear with me. So welcome to Masala Podcast Live. Give me a big cheer. Bad Beatties are taking over King's Place and the occasional Beatas I can see there. (laughs) You're welcome too. Um, So today we have four amazing guests uh, who you've probably heard on Masala Podcast before. If you haven't heard them, go and listen. We've got Raga De Silva. <laughs> Farah Kabir. <laughs> Rage Sridharivan. And last but not least, Dr. Tina Mystery. Welcome to Masala Podcast for the second time around. (laughs) So let's start by, so the whole theme of today is the bad baity takeover. We've all been bad baities. We've kind of refused to do as we were told and not towed the line and being Beisharam and all the rest of it. Let's start by each of you maybe telling me about your own bad baby journey. 
Raga, should we start with you? Thanks, Ingita. How lovely to be here and, and to see all of you here. Thank you for having me over. Now, bad beti. I think that if you had a radar of bad beti and a gauge, I think I would be the baddest beti in this room. That's debatable. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I actually want to be the baddest because I always win competition. And I'll tell you, you know, the fact that I'm sitting here, the fact that I'm sitting here and we're all sitting here, all the women in the room, we were actually allowed to be born. 45.6 million girls in India were not allowed to be born in 2020 as per the UN Population Fund. Now, that's a huge number. We don't want, we want more bad beties, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. My, my journey has always been to be a good betty. And I ended up being a bad betty, no matter how good I was. It took me 50 years to finally accept I'm not going to change. So I first, of course, was born in a uh, South Indian Mangalorean family. That's very important for you to know because I ended up marrying a North Indian, which is very bad in India, not done. <laughs> yeah. Then I decided after I was married for a while that I had a seven-year rich and I decided that marriage was not working. And I told my husband, it is not working. That's pretty bad. And I decided to separate and uh, that was pretty bad, let me tell you. My mother, who was with me in New Zealand in those days, that's where I lived, with my two children, my twins are here, my bad beta and my bad beta. <laughs> and the twins, and uh, my mother said to me that, please pretend, does your husband hit you? Does your husband drink? Does your husband not feed the family? Does he not look after you financially? Does he abuse you? And all, to all the questions, I said, no, he's fine. Then pretend for the sake of the children. I said, no, I couldn't pretend. I, because there was something else happening for me as well. And that was quite bad. Because I had decided at that time that I was living a double life. And that my relationship with myself was quite uh, dubious. I was interested in women and I was attracted to women. But at that time, family and uh, relationship that I had, I couldn't really manage. So I got into a journey of... Uh, accepting myself first, and I'll tell the story later. And that is my journey of being bad, because coming out as a gay woman in a, you know, Indian family is pretty terrible. It's scandalous. It's shameful. It is battamis. It's besharam life. And I lived that life. And I lived that life with pride. And today, Raga is a well-known LGBTQ activist. She's a speaker. She's a successful entrepreneur. Thank you, Raga. Next up, we have Farah Kabir, who is the co-founder of Hanks, um, which is a sexual wellness brand. Uh, Hanks is all about female contraception and women's kind of intimate health. Farah, tell us your journey to being a bad beauty. Wow, I can't top that story. <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredible story. And I don't think I tried to be a bad belly, but I somehow fall into that category <laughs> without meaning to. Um, a brown woman that makes condoms is a bad beauty. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, thank you so much for having me, and it's so nice to see you all. My name is Farah, and um, I'm the co-founder of Hanks, which is a sexual wellness brand designed with women in mind. And we have launched condoms and lubricants and vaginal health treatments. 
And I'm pretty sure I didn't dream of that career when I was a little child when they ask you, what do you want to do when you're older? Not a doctor, not a lawyer, not an engineer. (laughs) Yeah, much to my father's dismay that I wasn't a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer. But I did fall into uh, a finance career and I actually went into investment banking. So the natural progression for me was not then to go into condoms, but... It happened and we spotted um, a real gap in the market for products designed with women in mind um, and to address women as well uh, in sexual wellness. So, yeah, it was um, it was pretty traumatic going back to my Bangladeshi Muslim family and telling them that I want to leave banking and start selling condoms. Uh, <laughs> on Christmas Day of all days, <laughs> so <laughs> to be a fly on the wall. Um, but my my family took it really well eventually, and actually my my mother is a is a super feminist and was so supportive of this. And and it, it's a health matter, so you know it, it shouldn't matter how taboo it is. We we should be talking about things like this. So yeah, I mean nutshell. Thank you, Farah. Next up, we have Dr. Rageshri Dharivan, who's an NHS consultant and HIV and sexual health activist. So tell us how you did that. Right, where shall I start? First of all, thank you so much for the invite today. It's really wonderful to be here with you all and with such amazing panels. Panelists, so nice to meet you after all this time as well. Um, So I was born in what was called Bombay at the time, Mumbai, um, and then moved to Essex fairly quickly. So pretty much bred in Essex in a very, I would say, quite a white town where my mum was a local GP and she was also the family planning doctor of the town. So I was always very proud of her. She was very into women's rights. She used to do abortions. She used to prescribe contraception. And it was great. I really admired her. But I do remember being at school, girls would come up to me and say, I met your mum yesterday. And I knew what that meant. It meant they were having sex and they were trying to tell me. And of course, my mum would never tell me which of my friends she saw as patients. But um, I was told that they'd met my mum and that was the way. So I was really inspired by her. She's a feminist. um, But I still noticed that we never really talked about sex at all. Sex was a taboo. Sexual health was a taboo. And I kind of took that with me. Um, And at university, I think I started to get a bit more political and I started reading up a lot about abortion rights which as we know at the moment are so challenged Um, and that really gave me interest in working in sexual health and HIV. Um, So here I am, I'm a sexual health doctor mainly doing HIV. I had a few experiences um, so Uh, I've been a patient as well, and I've had experiences as a patient where I've understood what it's been to be a brown woman, a woman of colour as a patient, not being believed by doctors or other healthcare professionals, what it's like not to have a voice as a patient. So that, for me, has really driven my activism about making sure that we make space for people who aren't often heard to have their voice, particularly in health. So that's me. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Dr. Tina Mistry, um, you are a clinical psychologist. You specialize in South Asian mental health issues. Talk to us about that. Where do I start? I'm brown. I'm South Asian. <laughs> I'm born and bred in Leicester. So if people who don't know Leicester, Leicester is mini India. So um, born and bred in Leicester, I was surrounded by brown people. So I was lived in this little bubble. And then it was only until I left Leicester that I thought, oh, actually, there's white people around here. I didn't know that. And... That really did skew my kind of vision or upbringing in some ways. 
um, because I just saw brownness around me, which was great, but then also at the same time was a bit, oh, okay, so we're not, you know, it's not all of us in the world and that's it. As I started to go into my profession as a psychologist, which really stemmed from seeing my family distressed, but we never spoke about it. Who, how many of us speak about when we see somebody's distressed? And it wasn't until I watched a uh, documentary about depression, which Dr. Raj Pasoord was actually hosting, and he, he kind of talked about depression at that time. And this was like back in the 90s, especially how old I am. Um, and that was, that, that was my kind of point where I thought, actually, there's a word for the way people in my family and my community are expressing themselves. And we don't do nothing about it. We just say, oh, you know, that they've had voodoo done or black magic or actually, let's not talk about that. They're, they're crazy. So it was constantly dismissed in our community. And what I have been passionate about from a very young age is forget that. We got to talk about this stuff because not only does it affect our community, it affects our future generations. And that's what I'm about. I'm a mom of two children. Um, who are six and eight. And I want them to live in a world where mental health is no longer a taboo. I want them to talk about the struggles that we each and every one of us face. And also to talk about what it feels like to be minoritized, to experience racial trauma and to experience patriarchal trauma as well as South Asian women or South Asians in general. So that's what I'm here about. And that's why I'm a badass Betty. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny, um, as women, like from the time where, I don't know, five or six, these are the messages we receive. You're either, uh, we say good baby, bad baby, and that's funny. But if you think back to the messaging, if you as an Asian woman do this, you're good. If you do that, you're bad. So I wanted to, for us to think about, so who's a good baby? She's the demure one, the eyes downcast, the saying yes to everything. And the bad baby is the one who refuses to draw the line, answers back. You know, I used to get told by my mom, you know, don't answer back, that makes you bad, you know? So these are the kind of messages we grew up with. So it's no wonder then that as, you, as we grow into adults, there's all this kind of battling and fighting that we've got to do to establish who we are. And it's so subliminal. It starts at such a young age, and it's so subconscious a lot of the times. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the taboos, the things we're not allowed to talk about. So we don't talk about periods. We don't talk about mental health. We don't talk about our bodies. We don't talk about the menopause. There's so many, many, many things. And the big thing we don't talk about is S-E-X, sex. So, you know, India, where I come from, is like, what, second largest population? So everybody's at it. But apparently we don't do it. You know, that's how little we talk about it. So I remember as a child watching something on telly and, you know, the, the couple would kiss and my parents would change the channel. And that happens a lot in a lot of South Asian families. So I want us to talk about sex and normalize talking about sex because we're all doing it and we're all a product of it. So why are we not talking about it? So I thought we'd play a little game called the Gasm Guessing Game. So the way it's going to work is um, we'll play a sound and then I'll give you an option A and option B. <laughs> so option A is someone having an orgasm. Option B is something in entirely. Could we have the first one, please? Ah, uh, ah, uh, ooh. Is that A, a woman having an orgasm, 
or she's seen a spider. <laughs> so in answer, I'm going to come to the left side of the room, shout out, orgasm or spider? Spider! Right side of the room. Orgasm. Oh, we have an even split, 50-50. <laughs> Can we have the second moan, please? Oh, oh. Is that A, a woman having an orgasm, or B, she's seen the nosy auntie next door? Oh, even split again. Right side of the room, please. Oh, this one's very clear. Nosy auntie. Moan number three. Is that a woman having an orgasm or drinking her favorite cocktail in her favorite bar? <laughs> to the left, please. To the right, please. <laughs> Moan number four. This is a very long game. Oh. Orgasm? Or she's discovered there's no chocolate in the house. <laughs> Left side of the room, please. Right side of the room, please. <laughs> I think we've got the last and final moan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Is that a woman having an orgasm or being asked the question, where are you really from? <laughs> Left side of the room, please. Orgasm. Right side of the room, please. Orgasm. Oh, that's a, that's a show. Thank you so much for playing my gasm guessing game. <laughs> no. <laughs> I sound a lot better, actually. <laughs> Uh, coming back to uh, more serious topics, um, uh, let's chat a little bit with our guests. Um, Raga, so let's start with something you mentioned earlier. You know, coming out is, as queer is very difficult in our culture. So it's a very kind of everybody does the same thing kind of culture. So what was it like for you at age 50 to go, yes, I'm married and I've got kids, but I want to choose to love differently. What was that like? What was the experience like? Not orgasmic. <laughs> it was very challenging. It was something that I had lived with for uh, 20 years, Singita. And uh, you know, you just spoke about sex. We don't talk about sex. Imagine talking about sexuality. That doesn't exist. As long as you don't talk about it, you don't live that life. You don't exist. In fact, I was told very early on that if this is the life you want to lead, just make sure that you are less gay. And I don't know what that meant because my mom didn't know the meaning of gay. She thought being gay meant that you were really happy. And uh, which now just remember, you know, in the 80s, there was no there were no role models. There was no reference. And I think amongst all the bad betis here, I am born and bred in India. So I grew up in India, I spent, I got married in India, I had my babies in India, and I have a lot of in and out, I go in and out of India quite a bit, so I run businesses in India as well. So there was nobody that I could actually talk about or read about or know about that identified with how I felt inside myself. So at a very young age, I had crushes on you know, my teachers or friends, and I just <coughs> thought that I was abnormal, 
I thought that I was cursed because, you know, in Bollywood, do you, anybody watching Bollywood here? Yeah. We, we have something called the Niruparoy syndrome. Does anybody know who Niruparoy is? Yeah, so Niruparoy always lost her children in all the films at some festival, remember? Then she always found them when they were about 25, 30 years old. One was a cop, one was a <laughs> bad guy and a good guy. Yeah. And she always in the movie, always told herself, why am I cursed? I am so sad today because I have lived this life. If, if her child came to her, she always said that I think there's something wrong with me. I have done something wrong in my life to have deserved this child. My mother did exactly that. So let me just take you on a little journey. So I was about in my 30s, like I said, I was in New Zealand, Wellington. I had written a letter after I was talking about separation from my husband. Now, this is a long time ago, 18, 20 years ago. I had written a letter which I didn't have the courage to send to my friend. So I had kept it in the closet. Indian closets are the biggest closets. We have the biggest closets. We shove everything into it other than the clothes and the money that we have, right? All our secrets are there. I had shoved a letter in that closet, but my mother being my mother, there were no secrets in the house. She found that letter. One night I was putting my Anna and Ash to bed. They were about four years old and it was dark and I still remember that sound of someone entering the room. I thought it was an intruder and my heart was beating so wildly. I still remember that moment, Sangeeta. And I then suddenly sensed that it was my mother because you know, you can sense your mother. There's a certain uh, smell that emanates, I think, from your mom. And all I could see was a shiny knife held over me. And it still gives me goosebumps. And when I opened my eyes, it was my mother who was really angry, screaming. She had read the letter and she was really angry. And she was calling me all kinds of names. She called me Besharam. She said other things that I don't want to share here. And she said she had a Niruparoy moment. She said, I am cursed. How did such a daughter, was such a daughter born to me? And she was very upset. She uh, dragged me out of that closet. And that's when my uh, now ex-husband who came into the room and he uh, discovered what had happened. I'd already told him, so that was not a surprise to him. But it was quite dramatic. It was quite dramatic. I hid for a while. I went through the separation process. I started dating women in New Zealand. That was quite bad because the Indian grapevine, it's the biggest grapevine in the world again, I tell you. And uh, the, my workplace got to know, my friends got to know, we were uh, ostracized. Uh, there was the Indian community there, which I have many incidents which were quite traumatic, where I was abused, I was spat on, I was kicked, I was called names, uh, things were thrown at me. It was just humiliating that entire experience, so I hid again, I hid in that closet. I met my partner, Nicola, who's here in New Zealand. We have been together 15 years. We met 15 years ago. We brought up our children together. And we decided that this was our private life, that love. And of course, we didn't know we were going to be together this long either. I mean, who would want to be with me? I'm like such a bad baby. <laughs> no, no, but you know, like, uh, you know, no, when I said that, you know, I was broken. I was in many pieces and I was struggling through all those dark uh, phases that, you know, you would understand that you go through when you hide yourself. And I was not easy to be with, not easy to have, you know, um, have be a mother and be single. And so it was a difficult time. It was only about two years ago when my children and my partner and my ex-husband, who's a fantastic ally, said to me, 
write this down, write a book. And I wrote a book called Untold Lies. And that's when I came out publicly. And that's when I decided that this was important for me because if there was even one person I could inspire to live their life of truth, that was enough. And it has sparked, you know, and the shackles that I lived in, I refuse to live in them anymore. I am not bound by shackles. I love my family. I love the friends who have stood by us and those who haven't stood by us. I thank them for giving me the courage. Thank you. Thank you, Raga. That's super inspiring, as always. Farah, I wonder if we could chat a little bit about um, your kind of family circumstance and the South Asian community, the wider community, when you decided to quit being a banker and start making condoms. What was that like? <laughs> um, I've got goosebumps from your story. I feel so... Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so going back to Hanks and my background, so I come from a Bangladeshi Muslim family. My parents were immigrants that came over in the 60s, I'd say. Um, and I'm the youngest of five. And um, I think I had this sort of like hard work and effort because my family were always like, if you don't go to university, you're nothing. If you don't get a good job, you're nothing, which sadly gets drummed into you. And I think a bit of that is the, the immigrant side. They come, they're hardworking. They have to uh, deal with a lot when they come to new countries. So I was that was always drummed into me. Um, I've got two brothers and a sister. And being the youngest of four, I think, of five, I got away with murder. Um, but equally, having two big brothers made it quite difficult to talk to boys, have a boyfriend, even be seen with boys in the playground without my brother coming over and putting his arm next to the guy and saying, what are you doing talking to my sister? Um, so, so I had a bit of that growing up and I had the same as uh, the anecdote you mentioned in that, as soon as there was any kissing on TV, one person would walk away, the other one would check their phone, <laughs> look in the air, do you want a drink? <laughs> like, no. Wasn't it funny, whenever there was a parent, somebody would kiss on TV? Yeah, <laughs> what are the chances? Like, and, and the worst bit is when you're trying to, you know, there's been times where I've been like, oh my God, Isan, you need to watch this series, it's so good. And then we watch an episode together and there's like so much sex in there and it's like, oh God. Um, so, so we grew up around that. It was, it was very normal. And also, I grew up in Yorkshire where we were probably, you know, one of 10 Asian families at the time, and, and which is great. But in some ways, I think it can be quite limiting um, because in the Asian community, when there aren't that many Asians, it's quite narrow-minded. And I think that's the experience that I had, even sort of uh, going to the mosque. And, and you know, if, if I was seen walking into town with a group of people who are boys and girls. You know, my mum and dad would get the call that, you know, did you know your daughter's hanging out, you know, past 7 p.m. or, you know, she's going out with boys and girls and I've heard this. And it really frustrated me <laughs> because I also had a lot of non-Asian friends who would have sleepovers and would do other activities. Um, so I think that there was a bit of friction there. Um, and I didn't necessarily rebel, but I think I found it quite confusing growing up uh, and having those sort of barriers. Um, and then I thought I was going down the route of, uh, of medicine and then disappointed my father <laughs> quite last minute and uh, went into finance, went to university. And I, I have to take a step back here. So my mother and my father are both super hardworking and, and my mum is my absolute hero. So 
with, you know, five young kids. She had three jobs. She was a cleaner. She worked in a chocolate factory and then she'd worked at my dad's restaurant on an evening. You know, I'm pretty sure she'd hate for me to say this out loud, but I think my cot was like a draw when we were young. Like, you know, they really worked incredibly hard. And then my mother sadly had an accident when I was four. So she was actually cycling to, she'd set up with the council to teach Asian women English so that they could go to parents' evening and interact with them, you know, their, their children and education. And it was uh, when she was going there that a car hit into her. So she has spinal cord injuries and is an incredible soul and so strong-minded and was able to raise, you know, children at such young I was three at the time. So I've always sort of had that resilience in me. And I think having a mother who ha had multiple jobs in the 70s and 80s, probably the first Asian in York to wear trousers. She, she had a lot of better arm and, you know, people shunned her from the community. Why, you know, she should be at home with the kids. Why she sent her first daughter to a university that's outside of York. You know, so she had a lot of that. And I think she resonated probably with some of the battles that I would face then going on to start Hanks. Um, so I'm really lucky to have my mum and I don't think I'd be here and Hanks would be so successful without her support. Um, so yeah, went to university, finance, um, still didn't have a clue what I wanted to do, sort of fell into banking. And um, I was quite happy making mistakes in someone else's firm, to be honest. Didn't, <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't intend to set up my own company, but coming from the background that I was in, my siblings are quite entrepreneurial and they all have side hustles as well as their proper jobs. And every Christmas we'd all get together. And it would be, Safara, what's your next idea? Or, you know, there's, there's this commercial property or you should look into this. And I really didn't have any intention of setting up my own company. Um, but every year I'd get that question. And then when we thought of this idea of Hanks, which happened when I bumped into my boss when I was buying condoms, which was super embarrassing <laughs> because it was on my lunch break, two doors down from the office. So he was wondering, who is she going up to Hanky Panky with on a lunch break? And all sorts. Um, you know, me and my co-founder, who's a gynecology doctor, were very good friends from a young age. We, we both thought, right, we need to serve women better. She's a gynecology doctor. She's seen a rise of women coming into clinics with hard-to-treat SDIs. Tinder, Hinge, Bumble had just kicked off and condoms were needed more than ever. Um, when we had this idea, you know, obviously I did tell my mum I'm very close to her. And initially she was like... I think she was thinking of like the value of me still being in banking and and being able to marry me off into a really, you know, the statistics of, of having a nice career and then going into to condoms. I think initially she was like, oh, God. Um, and then when I explained, look, it's about women's health and, you know, there's, there's a wider play here. It doesn't matter what culture, religion, race, like everyone should have access to sexual health, women's health, generally speaking. And it is taboo. Like you said, no one talks about periods or your first time having sex, or, or any of these things that should be spoken about. And actually, I will point out that Sarah, who was working in sexual health at the time, my co-founder, she was working um, in some girls' schools in London and was teaching sex education. And uh, predominantly ethnic, some of these schools, and a lot of parents were signing their kids out of sex education because it's not mandatory. And so there was a big proportion of girls that just weren't getting this um, this education so you know long story short mum was in agreement with it but obviously was quite scared to tell my brother so come Christmas day they were like yeah so what's you know have you thought about anything else you want to do and I'm like well actually 
and there was silence. <laughs> and there was one brother who was like, you need to come back to York. Like, London is not for you. There's something in the water. Like, something's in gone the, wrong. In the water. And then, and then my mum was like, oh, gosh, yeah, you know, maybe this isn't right. She was like... So, so the, there was a bit of... It wasn't an uproar, but there was silence and there was discomfort. But... I'd backed it with a load of stats. Like, I, I know the, the way to impress a family is that if there's a business case in it. So we'd already surveyed 2,000 women to find out, okay, if we're going to leave our full-time jobs, is this what you'd want as a product? Um, you know, and what's stopping you from buying contraceptives publicly? Uh, and the output was our product, um, Hank. So, you know, free of any nasty chemicals, no anesthetics, which are generally found in male condoms because uh, useful for a man's pleasure, but terrible for women uh, and clean packaging. So all encompassing, really. And when I started to explain that, they, they started to understand it. I mean, I have to say, it wasn't a quick win. It wasn't like they were like, OK, great, we're, we're fully supportive. You know, my, my brother had initially said to me, Farah, can I be really honest with you? do not quit your day job. I don't see this going anywhere. But I know he was coming from it in a loving manner. I, you've got a comfort blanket here. You've got a secure job. But it just gave me fuel. Like, like it gave me the fire in my belly. And I was like, thanks for that. Because this time next Christmas, I'm going to prove you wrong. Um, and, and we did. And we launched Hanks three years ago. So. Woohoo! <laughs> I think when we were doing the interview, you said something to me about the chemicals that go into condoms. And it struck me for the first time. So no one's thought of the fact that this goes into a woman's vagina. So, like, nobody's thought about it. Yeah. You know, isn't that crazy? That's how little kind of products or medicine or anything is yeah. women-centric. Yeah, it's, it's mental to, to think that, yes, okay, a condom goes... Uh, on a man's penis. However, over 40% of purchases of condoms in the UK are made by women. So that's nearly half the market that just haven't been spoken to for decades. Um, and then when we looked into the products, so if you see any products that say tingling sensation or um, cooling, that often has an anesthetic in it. And the whole point is that um, it has a numbing effect for men, so that makes them last longer. But the ingredients that they put in there can be super irritating. For, for a woman's length part. So it, that's just one example. I mean, there's lots of examples across all industries about how women have, have not been considered, including like crash dummy testing in cars, etc. But yeah, it's crazy. World isn't made for us. <laughs> <laughs> Rageshri, um, I remember when we did the podcast interview um, for season two, wasn't it? Uh, talking to you about a lot of the women you work with are South Asian. Uh, some of them have been diagnosed with HIV. And I think I remember you telling me some really heartbreaking stories about how they don't approach a GP to get treated or why being treated is such a difficult situation for them. Can you talk to us a little bit about the mindset there? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think when we think about HIV, I think it's something that is very rarely talked about in the general population at all. Um, and I think for a lot of people, when you think about who's visible and the populations we think of with HIV, it's often men. We often think that HIV is something that affects gay men. 
um, and it's very rare that we think about it affecting women. And actually, that's crazy because the, in terms of who, who's more likely to have HIV globally, it's women. Women make up the majority of people living with HIV around the world. And when we look at who they are, yes, the majority is in sub-Saharan Africa, but the second kind of most prevalent place for HIV is in India, in South Asia, and East Asia. So there are a lot of South Asian women living with HIV globally, and there's many in the UK as well. But these are people who you rarely see in HIV campaigns, in public health campaigns generally. And it's really about who do you get the information to? So how can you access information? And I think what you just said in terms of taking people out of sex ed education in schools is such an important point, because if people have access to sex education, they can look after their sexual health, they can prevent getting things like HIV and other STIs. So I think that thing around health promotion, who and who isn't visible, is really, really important. So when we see South Asian women living with HIV when they're diagnosed, um, they tend to be what we call diagnosed late. Um, so what late diagnosis means is it's generally when someone has had the virus for a few years and it's had a chance to um, damage the immune system and people become unwell. So people can be living with HIV, the virus, for a long time before they know it. And if you access sexual health clinics, if you get access testing from anywhere like your GP or from other places, then then you will know if you have HIV because you get diagnosed early. But for a lot of South Asian women, it's late. So it means that they're often much more unwell and much more likely to get sick. And I think it's that perception of not thinking that you're at risk, which I think is the main thing. Um, so if you don't think HIV will affect you, then why look to get tested? And people don't know there's lots of ways to prevent getting HIV these days. So you can take a tablet called PrEP, which you take every day, which can prevent you getting HIV. So condoms are, of course, incredibly um, important, but not everyone can use condoms. Not everyone has the power in their relationships to decide whether they can use condoms or not. So um, I think that's one thing is around late diagnosis. And I think um, I see a lot of women in my clinic. Um, and I think particularly amongst South Asian women, they tend to be the ones who haven't told anybody else about it. So I think often they can feel quite alone and quite isolated. And one of the most powerful things in HIV is what we call peer support. So you just introduce someone to someone else living with HIV. And it's a really powerful way in terms of mental health, dealing with kind of self-stigma and all those things. But I don't think I've ever successfully managed to refer a South Asian woman to peer support because they've never wanted to talk to someone else about their HIV. So I think that, that's really powerful. And um, I'm an HIV doctor. It's really important to me that people think about HIV. And I've got two colleagues in the audience here. I'm going to shout out Sham and Mina. And, and together, we've created an organization called Sahar, which is the South Asian HIV advisory resource. And what we really want to do is get people thinking about sex education around HIV. And we want everyone to get tested, basically. And there's so many reasons to get tested. Because now, if you're diagnosed early, we give you treatment. You can expect to live as long as everyone else. If you have a partner, you won't pass HIV onto your partner, even if you don't use condoms. If you want to have children, you can. They won't get HIV. You can essentially just live a normal life. Um, so, you know, I'm gonna, just going to... Is it OK if I talk about U equals U? <laughs> um, so I think it's just really important that everyone leaves here knowing about U equals U, which is a global campaign which stands for un undetectable equals untransmittable. And that means that if you have an undetectable virus in your blood, if you're on effective treatment, you cannot pass HIV on, on, on to anybody else. So you are uninfectious. And it's such a powerful thing when it comes to stigma and worry about infecting others. So I think my one plea is for everyone to get their HIV, get an HIV test and know your status. 
service. And I'm so fed up of working on the ward and seeing people with, with AIDS-defining diagnoses who are often from minoritised communities who haven't had access to sex education, access to HIV testing, and just I'm fed up of seeing people die of AIDS in this country in this day. So that's why I'm really passionate about it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Tina, um, coming to you, some of the some of the issues when you work with South Asian women as a, as a uh, psychologist, what, how does our culture affect our mental health? It's a very big question, I know. But even, say, when we're talking to Rageshri about how someone might have an illness, but there's so much stigma around it. And that sense of stigma and shame carries on so much within our community. And that stops people getting help. That stops people saying they have a problem. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much overlap with what you were saying, you know, that we don't get early intervention. We don't, we don't even see the signs initially. We kind of bury things under the carpet and pretend that things aren't happening to us. And it, we access help when it is too late. There is unequal access, especially within the statutory services in the NHS where I used to work, where we would see you know, black and Asian people who are accessing services, you know, we're talking like severe and enduring mental health, psychosis, bipolar, you know, this is the point where it, it gets really entrenched. And this is where people get stuck in systems. And, you know, as I was alluding to before, that I've seen my own family go through severe mental health issues. And it was because they didn't know about it. So number one, education, as you were saying, Rakashree. But then second, the stigma around what is happening, because we have all these various um, explanations for things, black magic and, you know, somebody did something to somebody or somebody's evil eye, or they're eating the wrong things, or they're not praying enough. And... I'm not here to kind of bash those ideas, but what I'm here to do is to explain to people that there are more, more than one way of healing. And we've got to start to acknowledge that suffering is inevitable. It's part of life. And we have to start to accept that. And that there are ways in which we can heal ourselves and take responsibility. And, you know, the things that you were saying, Ragashri, I, I just felt like, oh my gosh, this is exactly how it is in mental health, that people are seeking or aren't seeking the support at the right time. There is still so much shame and taboo around suffering. And, you know, the typical things that I tend to see are, you know, I'm suffering with anxiety or low mood, depression. And it's usually centered around relationships, believe it or not, because... Asian communities are collectivist communities. We are surrounded by people we love and care, but we have difficult relationships with people. And, you know, it's really about trying to acknowledge and normalize that this is part of life and we have to deal with things head on. And one of the biggest things we talk about is communication and assertiveness and boundaries. You've probably all seen this on Instagram and, you know, Twitter, that this is, this is the world that we need to now start to advocate for, that women need to be heard, men need to be heard more so as well, but also we need to be addressing the much more larger issues. So the systemic issues that affect us on a day-to-day -day basis, like patriarchy, like racial oppression. And unfortunately, this is the problem that I see within my practice 
that, you know, people come to me and they're like, well, I've not told anybody I'm seeing a therapist. And often what we're seeing and the more conversations having with um, therapists who work in private practice is there is a high proportion of South Asians accessing private therapy. Whereas when I was working in the NHS where therapy is free, I hardly saw anybody. And I'm, I currently live in Birmingham. Birmingham is a multicultural city. And I probably saw a handful of South Asian and black clients working, you know, that I worked with directly, which is a huge shame. And I think that there are various barriers again to that, which are around, you know, our understanding or our conceptualization of mental health. So I was you know, uh, trained in the UK. So I have a very Eurocentric view of how mental health is constructed. And we're only now starting to address that actually there are differences. There are global differences in the way that people make sense of mental health. And that we have to start to normalize the conversations around distress and suffering. So it's, you know, we're, we're chip chipping away, we're starting, and these kind of conversations are exactly what it's about. And the more that we continue to talk about us having or needing a day to maybe just reflect or recuperate, and the word self-care comes up so often, that, that we just need to keep those conversations going. But what I would say to people is that suffering is inevitable and we all need to find our own ways of healing. And there is no shame in going to seek for professional help. And that, that's that's kind of what, what we're about really in, in kind of healthcare or holistic well-being as a whole. Thank you so much. So here we are, four awesome brown women doing wonderful things in the world. Um, I wonder if, let's start with you, Tina. Um, what advice would this bad Beatty give to your 16-year-old self? Oh, my poor 16-year-old self. I look back and I think I was wearing my brother's sweatshirt, baggy <laughs> jeans. I had long hair, really thick eyebrows, and I remember that face. And I couldn't quite figure out, you know, what fashion was. And I was obviously a 90s child, mad into hip-hop and R&B. Um, that 16-year-old girl had no clue about identity. I think you know, Farah, you were touching on that, about who are we and how are we represented in this current day and age. And thank God there are people like Sangeeta in the world who are unashamedly talking about being brown, you know? And that's so powerful because back in the 90s and the 80s, that wasn't a thing. Like, I didn't see anybody on TV that looked like me. And when we did, we all ran to the TV and said, look, there's a brown person on TV. And literally the whole family would run. And by the way, we just had a fangirl moment because we just saw Sanjeev Baskar. And I was like, you're my hero. Who um, apparently loves Masala podcast, I I'm told. know, how cool. So my 16-year-old self, what I would say to you is that, you know, being brown isn't a bad thing. We have brown girl problems. We have brown girl issues. And with time and energy and, and focusing on ourselves and having conversations and having sisterhood, which I think was what got me through all those dark times, is going to be my healing. And that's what I would say. And that's what kind of helped me. So I'm very fortunate to have a set of friends that grew with me who I could speak to, but I continue to engage in conversations and engage in sisterhood like this. So yeah, that's what I'd say to my 16 year old self. Rageshri, what about you? 
Um, so I was a child of the 90s as well, and I was heavily into white guitar music. So I was really into Britpop. And the only person representing there was Sonia Aurora Madden of Echo Belly, who is still one of the coolest South Asian women there are. And I may have hair like her slightly. Um, <laughs> it wasn't on purpose. Um, so I, th I think for me, I was always very quiet, very shy. Um, and I think I would probably tell my 16 year old self that it's okay to take up some space. It's okay to speak up. It's okay to think that what you say is important and you may say the wrong things, you probably will say the wrong things, but that's okay to make mistakes as well. You don't have to be perfect. You can be authentic and you can speak your truth. So that's probably what I would say. And it was kind of towards the end of being 16 that I discovered clubbing. And I would say, it's okay to keep going out loads. You're still gonna get your A-levels and do all right. So <laughs> just enjoy yourself. <laughs> Para? Um, yeah, so I think I'm on the cusp of Gen Z, possibly, or millennial. So it was all about sort of the MSN statuses and Bebo profile pictures for me. Um, I think a few things I'd say. One, don't be so hard on yourself. Don't try and I think as a, being 16 in that environment, you're conflicted. You're like, do I need to conform to the Asian community or do I need to conform to where I've been brought up and, you know, my other friends and don't be so hard on yourself and it will work out. It, you know, even if there are bad days, it, it does get better than this. It gets better than your bedroom in your family home at 16. You will get out of there. Um, <laughs> and I think the, the third thing is, and this has felt true as I've gotten older, go with your gut. Uh, and it's something my mum has always told me, like, go with your gut. It's got your best interest at heart. And when I was younger, I was never quite sure. And now as I've gotten older, I'm, like, there is such thing as intuition and sort of having that, that gut feel. So go with it. You're young. You can afford to take risks. And it'll all work out in the end. Before I come to Raga, I wanted to chip in as well. So when I was 16, I lived in Mumbai. I lived in a very traditional family. So I was fighting with my family pretty much every day. So I'd go back and tell that 16-year-old girl, but keep fighting. That's good. You're, you're right. And keep fighting for you know the, the hair you want, the friends you want. They're all telling you you're wrong, but you're not. You're right. So that's what I would say. I think it's so difficult when you're younger to kind of believe in the things you believe and to, to actually take a stand and validate that. So I would, I would say that. Raga, what about you? It's a hard one. It's a long time ago for me. <laughs> but you know, I think what I remember about being 16 is the innocence, the freshness. You know, you really believed, I really believed in life and people and love. And I think at 50, I'm actually a little older than 50, but I decided to be 50 for the rest of my life. At 51, <laughs> I I still, I, I think I have started living like a 16-year-old. So I am that 16-year-old that I wasn't able to be. I feel innocent. I feel in love. I allow myself to fall in love every day with my partner. I make that choice every day, every morning. I tell myself, this is my life is magical. Of course, it has its ups and downs. But it feels like that. And I want that 16-year-old to always remember that things will work out. I love Bollywood, by the way, and a story I wrote uh, during lockdown is going to be made into a feature film, which I'm very proud of. And to me, 
that is about changing the narrative. And I want that 16-year-old to remember that throughout our life, we have the option and the choices to change our narrative one story at a time. And that 16-year-old will remain a 16-year-old forever. Talking about love and talking about um, your own journey of love, um, I wanted to explore that a little bit more. And I wonder if we could get your partner, Nicola, to come up and join us for a, for a quick, quick conversation. Nicola has, uh, uh, I just want to just yeah, share please. a little bit about Nicola. Nicola and I have been together 15 years, and um, we live between India and uh, London. Please don't fall. Uh, <laughs> there's only uh, one thing I have to remember is to make her fall in love with me. But however, I just digress. She, she actually taught me that you don't need to fall. You need to rise in love. You know, and it's something which I have kept inside my heart forever that you have to feel that your love grows every day. It doesn't go down. And sometimes it can feel that it's pulling you down, but you pull it back up. And Nicola, uh, it's a special month for us, September. Today is the day when we all moved to the UK nine years ago, Singita. And uh, today is the day that uh, I moved to New Zealand also, about 20 years ago. And uh, uh, in September last year, Nicola had a stroke all of a sudden. and. Uh, the family has been through quite a bit um, you know, of uh, trauma, I use the word now. But we've healed together. Uh, and there are certain parts Nicola can't see, for instance, from the left side. And I say it's a good thing, because she can only see half of me now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to worry too much. But no, but this is what love is. And, I, and I, the reason I'm talking about this, Sangeeta, is because people think of love being heterosexual. They think in India, when somebody went for a, they filed for marriage petition, they, for instance, they said, marriage is between a biological man and a biological woman. So marriage rights are not given to people from our community, from the LGBTQ community. And I want to say, can we just forget about sex? Because when people talk about sex, about LGBT, they think about sexual orientation. I get asked by a lot of people, how do you do it? And you know what I'm talking about, sex. Well, Google, you know? <laughs> Seriously. Then people also say that how can you, it's, it's, it's abnormal, it's, it's an illness that two people uh, of the same sex should not be together. And I say, really, is this abnormal living with love? Is your dysfunctional marriage, which you are, I was going to swear, which you're stuck in. You're allowed to swear on the podcast. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. You're fucking stuck in. You're not letting, <laughs> not allowing yourself to get out of a dysfunctional fucking marriage or relationship. Is that love? No. This is love. And to me, I want all of us to celebrate love. I want all of us to, when you see people from our community, to go up and just give them a hug because it's a real struggle for us. And love is not just sex education. It's important because people don't know the difference between sex and gender either. That's also important to know. But I think love should be taught in school as well. That's beautiful. Thank you. Nicola, thank you for joining us. Nicola, was there a moment when you knew Raga was the one? 
Yeah, oh, good. lights have gone off. <laughs> this is supposed to be pitch black. <laughs> it is pitch black now. I wonder if we've had a malfunction, or I wonder if this is the surprise we had in store. Can she answer? I want to know the yeah. answer. I've yeah. waited 15 yeah. years. Uh, I think uh, when I woke up and there was Raga here, Anna, maybe this big, Ash, maybe this big, and everybody was in the bed, I think that was it. <laughs> I think that was night one. <laughs> yeah. Raga, is there anything you'd like to say to Nicola? I've I've waited for this moment for a long time. I was going to sing, but I'm not going to sing because I feel so emotional. You know, I have run away from uh, marriage for a long, long time. I uh, was married. Anybody would ask me about marriage, I would say, I've been married, been there, done that, don't want to make the same mistake again. But I think I want to make a mistake again because I want to be a bad betty. And I said I was going to win the contest for bad betty, and I'm going to ask Nicola whether she would marry me. Nicola say yes. 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 So, if I'd been warned of this beforehand, I would have practiced my Hindi and I would have had a whole speech done in Hindi and we could have all clapped at my bad Hindi. But I'm still going to do a jalebi. <laughs> and because you love Bollywood so much, <laughs> I'm not very good at um, what do you call it? Uh, Bollywood quotes, what do you call them? Uh, dialogues. <laughs> Bollywood dialogues, but I'm going to make my own. And the first one I'm going to do is. <laughs> For those who don't speak Hindi, that's are you mad? What will people say? <laughs> It's a yes, ladies and gentlemen. We have our first. You know, we've grown up with all these uh, visuals and ideas of the Indian family. This is the Indian family. This is what it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for making. Thank you for making Masala Podcast and me part of like the most special day of your life. I'm truly honored. I truly am. Um, what else can I say? There is nothing left to say. <laughs> thank you so much, Raga, Nicola. The kids are Asha, Ash, Anna, Anna, Farah, Rageshri, Tina, for doing the Bad Babies Proud. 
for coming along and shaking things up and taking over King's place. I feel a bit emotional. I'm a little bit choked up. <laughs> um, thank you. I feel like we've, what have we done today? We've celebrated love. We've celebrated being South Asian. I've decided to wear a sari at every podcast. Um, but I think what's more important is we've decided to celebrate being South Asian, but the bits that we want, and I think that's really, really important. So we've been told that to be South Asian, to be part of this culture, you do X, Y, and Z, and you don't do all the other things. But I think our learning is that we can choose. There are bits of the culture that we love. I love saris and jumkas and over-the-top jewelry. So that's what I choose. I choose not to have an arranged marriage or whatever each of those things. And that is a choice. And I think that's what I'd like us to celebrate most from today. And thank you, and thank you for sharing the joy. Um, thank you all for being here, for being part of the big Bad Beatty takeover, uh, and for playing the Gasm guessing game as well, as cheerfully as you did. Um, that's it. Um, please feel free, when we've finished here, there's merchandise outside. Uh, feel free to go have a browse. There's Bad Beatty necklaces, which some of you have asked me about. Um, we're going for drinks to the pub, The Fellow, which is down the road, so if anyone wants to join, you can come along. Um, Matt here is taking a video, so if a few of you, hey, cheers, Matt, could go along and just say what you thought of today. We're putting together a lovely video for us and for Raga, so that they could take away. Well, what did you experience of Masala Podcast today? I want to do a lot more of them, so make it, make it good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again, and... Thank you for being part of the Bad Beatty Takeover today. Thank you. Last, I promise last few words from me. One thing we forgot to say that, you know, in Indian families, they ask us not to talk to strangers all our life. And then they get us married to one. So I'm glad I didn't have to marry a stranger. But thank you very much. All of you are invited to the wedding whenever that happens. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organizations which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Pillai. Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and produced by me, Sangeeta Pillai, edited by Orbis, the studio, Opening music by Sonny Robertson. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi Hi, Bad Betty.